The Bob Murphy Show, episode 266. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm calling an audible, meaning I'm departing from what I thought the topic was going to be, because I saw a recent tweet. And I was just thinking about it. And I said, you know, there's enough here. There's enough meat here for me to base an episode on it. And it also ties into something that came up when I was doing the Founders Forum podcast where our guest was Peter St. Ange. And no, actually, no, I'm conflicted. We had, I had Peter on, on back-to-back podcasts that I co-host. I think actually the issue came up with the Human Action one where recently I had him on, Peter, and we were talking about should the public care if the central bank goes bankrupt? And then we went through some interesting thought experiment that I've never seen discussed in Austro-Libertarian circles before. So I thought, you know what, that's a good opportunity. So it's it's in the same ballpark as what this first thing I'm going to talk about is. So it makes sense to kind of link those two things together. And so why don't we jump right in because the two kids are sleeping right now. It's my opportunity to record a podcast. Oops. Before we jump into the episode, folks, I'm recording this now after I recorded the full episode, I learned after the fact that, well, I'll put it this way, there's good news and bad news. So the bad news is there's a whole literature discussing many of the points that I'm going to bring up in this episode. Okay, so a lot of stuff that I, I guess I thought was original to me is not. The good news is my points all stand up. In other words, some economists would disagree with what I'm saying, but other economists would agree with it. And when I'm reading the debates, I'm siding with the people who are saying what I think. Okay. In particular, so what happened is David Andalfato, when he was answering some of my objections after I had recorded this particular response to what he had earlier said in our tweet argumentation, he pointed to some articles he had written for the St. Louis Fed. And when I was reading, I was like, oh, okay, actually David does address some of my objections. And then he also linked to a Robert Barrow article published in the journal Political Economy in 1974 titled, Our Government Bonds Net Wealth. And this gets into a lot of the issues. So what I'm realizing is, so this Barrow article covers a lot of the ground. This is what I was trying to do when I was at Texas Tech. This was one of the projects I had is because it was, you know, after the financial crisis and all the QE and whatever, and then the Keynesian types were saying, oh, there's a shortage of safe assets in the world and we need the U.S. Treasury and maybe, you know, Japan's government and other, you know, real reputable places with strong currencies to issue more government debt because the investors really want that right now. And I thought that was nutty and I was trying to write. And and so there and there was like a formal academic paper that had come out that Krugman referenced that seemed to show that, yeah, see, if the U.S. Treasury issues more debt than the world becomes better because people, you know, they want to add these real safe assets to their portfolio in times of high uncertainty. That makes everybody calm down. They can plan for future cash flows better. And I thought that's nutty. And so I was trying to write a formal, you know, neoclassical model to show once you take into account some of the things that these other guys left out of their model, then you see that no, raising the level of government debt doesn't in any sense make us richer or even help entrepreneurs plan for future cash flows better. And so Barrow makes a lot of those points in this article. So like I say, good news and bad news. The, I guess that's really good news is that I actually didn't finish writing that article ever. I just <laughs> never got around to doing it while I was at Texas Tech. And so maybe it's a good thing because I would have submitted it and the journal auditor would have said, yeah, you know, there's this famous paper. Because I don't think I said it. This is the paper where Barrow gets into what's later been called Ricardian equivalence. So he doesn't talk about David Ricardo in here, but if you know what Ricardian equivalence is, this is where Barrow... You know, we can say rediscovers it if you want. Okay, so there's no asterisk and anything I'm going to say in this episode that you're about to listen to. Like, I'm, I still stand behind everything I said. 
It's just David Andalfato is aware of these arguments, whereas from his original tweets, I thought, man, how come this guy doesn't know these obvious objections? And he does at least know the objections. Okay, here you go. Enjoy. Okay, so the main thing that made me say, you know what, here's something worth doing a whole episode about was David Andalfato, who is a... Well, his Twitter bio says, construction worker turned academic, turned central banker, turned academic again. He's the chair of the econ department at Miami Herbert University of Miami. Anyway, I've had David on this podcast before. Remember the number off the top of my head. I will look it up and post it in the show notes page. So again, what you want to do is go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 266 to get the links of things I talk about here. And also link to his tweet too. But anyway, he's got this tweet up saying, since 2009, Bitcoin market cap has grown from $0 to $500 billion. Over the same period of time, the U.S. Treasury market cap has grown from $6 trillion to $22 trillion. And he's got a Fred chart showing the market valuable of marketable treasury debt. Okay, so and then I'll read more of his tweet thread. His next tweet says, Obviously, Bitcoin has done better than the U.S. Treasury as far as rate of return for individual investors is concerned. However, market cap might be a better measure of social, oh, actually social value, because he's got asterisks. I thought they were quotation marks. I'm getting old. It's hard for me to see the, you know, also the laptop is far from me because I got the big mic in front of my face right now. U.S. Treasuries used widely as wholesale money, for example, and growth in U.S. Treasuries reflects transfers of money to Americans. Okay, so... I was arguing with him in the comments, but let me, first of all, let me just make sure you get what his point is. So in the comments, he was coming back and saying things like, well, I mean, if you look at market caps of companies or people regularly look at the market cap of Bitcoin to kind of gauge how valuable, how big of an impact is Bitcoin having on society. So let's just be fair. The U.S. Treasury market, again, to repeat his statistics, the market cap, by which he means, if you took, you know, the market price of particular types of treasuries, whether they're T-bills or bonds or notes, given maturities and you know, what's the price and then how many outstanding are those things are held by the public at large. And then you add it all up. That's a sense in which that's the market cap. So it's short for market capitalization. So if you say like, what's the market cap of GE? What you do is you say, what's the individual price of GE stock times how many outstanding shares are owned by investors around the world? Obviously, it could include hedge funds and stuff. And then you add it all up. So on any given day, it's not that that amount of money trades hands for people buying GE stock or whatever the company is. It's just that you look at the last transaction to find out, you know, what's, quote, the current price of that stock share. And then you multiply by the outstanding. And that's a sense in which that's the market cap. They got the short for market capitalization. And it kind of represents the net equity in the firm. Okay. I mean, literally, it just means what I just said. It's how much did somebody just pay for those shares? You know, so some idiots came in and paid, quote, the wrong price for the stock that could temporarily affect the market cap. And as good free market economists, at least if it is a fairly free market, you think there's forces in place where speculators would come in if the price really is out of whack. But that's the idea. Okay. So David is saying, well, hey, if you Bitcoin boys are going to get excited about Bitcoin going from $0 to $500 billion. And what's the Bitcoin market cap? Obviously, that just means what's the price, the last price we have of Bitcoin, what did it trade for, measured in US dollars, times the outstanding number of Bitcoins that are in existence right now that have been mined. And then those two numbers is Bitcoin's market cap. So like loosely speaking, if you had to buy all the Bitcoins in the world, then this is how much you'd have to come up with, assuming your actions by trying to do that didn't affect the individual price. Okay, so by the same token then, well, gee, I've got something that's way better, more socially valuable than Bitcoin. Look at the U.S. Treasury's debt, that the total value of U.S. Treasury debt in 2009 was only $6 trillion, and now it's risen to $22 trillion. So yay, Uncle Sam, look at how much value you've been showering on the world. So I think that's totally wrong. Like, it's seriously wrong. There's so much wrong with that that that's what's going to constitute the bulk of this episode. But it's instructive to walk through why it's wrong. Okay, so I'm just making a note to make sure I link to my episode with David. And by the way, he's a super nice guy, right? That, uh, <laughs> so, and he's not, he's, I'm not saying he's dumb. That's partly why I've spent so much time on this. This wasn't some random guy's comment that had 13 followers on Twitter and 
a picture of a U.S. flag or something is his profile pic, right? This is a former central banker. So this is a serious economist. So where to begin? Okay, how about this? As a first pass, one thing that's wrong with this is there is a big difference in saying, oh, the market share, how many look up what the market cap of GE is just so I don't, GE market cap is, okay, right now, the General Electric Company's market cap is $104 billion, okay? So yes, there is a sense in which you could say the value of General Electric organized as a firm, the fact that certain assets are under the ownership of General Electric and, you know, certain people go there to work and inputs get turned into outputs under the leadership of the regime of people controlling institutionally General Electric is valued at, what I say, $104 billion. Yeah, that's a way of expressing that concept, right? There is something there. That number means something. The fact that GE's market cap is that and consulting by RPM, which is my consulting company, is not $104 billion. I think the market undervalues what my market cap should be. It's also not a publicly traded company. But even if it were, I'm sure right now shares and consulting by RPM would not have a market cap of $104 billion. So. What does that mean? You know, it means something. And right now, you know what? I don't even want to get into what does it mean. It's not important. But here's what I want to say is what you would not do is say, hey, how much outstanding debt does General Electric have right now? Let me see if I can even find that. Outstanding. Gee, it sounds funny. Like someone said, how much debt does GE have? And they say, and you say, outstanding. Okay. General Electric long-term debt for the quarter ending December 31st, 2022 was 28.6 billion, okay? So I don't see people walking around saying, hey, is GE good for the economy or how much value has GE provided to planet Earth? And people say, well, let's see, oh, you know, they're outstanding debt. People to whom General Electric owes money, if you added up all those liabilities, would be about 28.6 billion. So yeah, as a first pass, GE's probably contributing right now to the economy or represents wealth of 28.6, but no one talks like that. And why not? Because that makes no sense. The market cap figure of GE took into account the debt, right? Other things equal, let's say, you know what, the market cap was what I say, 104 billion. Let's say there was a new discovery, you know, the accountants went in and did their periodic reviews and then came out one quarter and said, whoa, sorry, everybody. Hope people don't go to jail over this, but we totally screwed up. There was a Silly mistake somebody put in the Excel spreadsheet for the last three years. And we, based on this last bond issue that we did or three years ago and blah, blah, blah. Turns out GE, it doesn't have 28.6 billion in long-term debt. It has 29.6 billion in long-term debt, right? We were off by a billion dollars. GE right now has a billion dollars more in debt than all of you investors realize. Sorry about that, our mistake. Other things equal, what would debt news do that would surely lower the share price of GE? Right. If you had a model where, you know, there were just a few moving parts and everybody had rational expectations, blah, blah, blah. I believe the market cap of GE would drop by exactly $1 billion, right? To reflect the fact that its net assets were a, a billion dollars lower, right? The, the shareholder equity in terms of the standard balance sheet is now a billion dollars less than people thought it was. And so since a share of stock in GE is a fractional piece of ownership, you're a residual claimant on the net assets of the company to learn that in the aggregate, the net assets of the company are a billion dollars less than you thought they were 10 minutes ago should mean, again, if we're all robots and blah, 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 and there's not too much else going on, then yeah, what's the quote, new equilibrium share price? I think it should be lowered such that when you add a, you know that drop in individual share price times all the outstanding shares, GE's market cap should drop by a billion dollars. All right, so as we see, far from being an indicator of how valuable GE is, if anything, it's outstanding debt, other things equal would make you mark down how much value you thought that enterprise was giving. Okay, now, does that mean debt is bad? No. So let, let me do this too, just real simple stuff. I go up and I borrow $1,000 from David Andalfaro. Did the economy get $1,000 richer? David's got an IOU for me for $1,000. There's a sense in which, no, it's purely a wash, right? He has a $1,000 asset. I have a $1,000 liability. 
and then the asset of the cash changed hands. All right, so neither of us is actually poorer than we were 10 seconds before the transaction occurred. It's just we changed the composition of our assets and liabilities, right? That I went from saying, let's have zero assets and zero liabilities. He went from having $1,000 in cash and zero liabilities. So he had net equity of $1,000 or net assets of $1,000 and I had zero in net assets. He gives me the $1,000 in currency and now I have a liability of $1,000 because I owe him $1,000 in market value, right? Like even if there's an interest rate, like even if I say, oh, I'll pay you back $1,100 in 12 months, right now the market value of that IOU liability to me is 1000 right? So my assets and liability is still net to zero. I have $1,000 in cash that's new. So my assets are that much higher, but $1,000 in liabilities is new. So boot, nets to zero, just like before. Whereas from his perspective, all he did was swap the asset type. He got rid of $1,000 in cash and now has a $1,000 IOU from Bob Murphy, right? So he's unchanged too, right? So that's one way you would do it. Now, does that mean debt markets do nothing for the world and it's just all zero-sum transactions? No. And maybe we'll get in, well, let's hold, I'll get into that a little bit more when it comes to what role possibly the government could play. All right, but just want to state the obvious that I didn't just prove that therefore, if the government banned debt instruments, that the economy would be just as well off. No, I didn't just prove that. Okay, same thing with, I wrote a series of articles for Mises.org a while ago called the social function of, and it was like of stock speculators, futures contracts, and call and put options, I believe were the three topics I covered. And so like with futures options, those things are like zero sum is like the way they book those things. Okay. So when you first buy or sell, like it's not worth anything to one party or the other. And then as the price moves, you just make payments. So in principle, it shouldn't matter, you know, from one perspective, oh, it's not doing anything to anyone's balance sheet. But on the other hand, because people have different exposures to different prices, it can matter, right? That, for example, an airline might want to have futures contracts on crude oil so that in case it gets more expensive, then the value of their contracts gets marked up along the way and they profit from that. And the issuer could be the owner of oil deposits, right? And so there, even though looking just at the futures contract, it's a zero-sum game that if one party wins because of crude oil prices moving a certain way, either up or down, what one party gains, the other party loses the exact same amount. Still, the fact that airlines know they need to be net consumers of crude oil in the future and the people who own oil deposits know they're going to be net sellers, that's the way they hedge so that they can just bank so it's effectively like the airlines can lock in future crude oil prices, expenses to them, so that if the actual market price either goes higher or lower, they don't want to take that gamble. They want to diversify away from that risk. And so that's one of the things that futures contracts or forward contracts equivalently allows you to do. Okay. So it would be wrong to just say, because for a given futures contract transaction, if one party gains, the other party loses, therefore... The whole thing was a wash. And if we ban futures markets altogether, that wouldn't do anything to anybody. That would be wrong to think like that. So likewise, even though I'm saying, yeah, if I borrow $1,000 from David Andalfato, there's a sense in which our market positions are unchanged, our wealth is unchanged. That doesn't mean the contract confers no social benefit. It does. You know, if it's a voluntary transaction, we both think we're better off so on. All right. So the fact that companies can borrow money by issuing debt, that's socially beneficial that they have that option to do it because maybe they're going to go do something with that money that they borrow, those resources that they effectively get control over sooner rather than having to wait for their net earnings to catch up to it, what their plans are. Okay. And the lenders, of course, if that's all things considered, including the riskiness of getting paid back is the best use of their funds, then they benefit from that option rather than having some other alternative that's less desirable from their perspective. Okay, so win-win. However, having said all that, still nobody points to GE's outstanding debt as a gauge of how much social value it's conferring on society. Because if anything, that's like showing the resources they've taken on a society in the past, and so they better be doing something useful with it. 
All right. So it's not that the debt means they've done something bad, so long as what they've done with those resources they borrowed more than makes up for it, including the impending interest payments. But that's a separate claim. Okay. But things are even screwier when it comes to the government and to look at U.S. Treasury debt. Oh, by the way, another thing with the Mark Cab is like he said, Bitcoin. Okay, Bitcoin is not debt, right? If you own Bitcoins, it's not that somebody owes you something or that's a liability to somebody else. The way every debt instrument is one person's asset, but somebody else's liability. Incidentally, that's why it's standard in financial accounting and financial economics to say that the net value of financial instruments is zero. I actually have a problem with that. And um, there's, there's a guy who's been emailing me for years and I feel bad because it's, he's very patient with me, but it's the kind of thing he's been sending me like things from textbooks and papers and reports issued by reputable accounting bodies and things like that, or macroeconomics that makes that claim that yet yeah, net financial assets are zero. Yeah, I have a quibble with that because I think it overlooks equity and how that works. Like if you arrange resources into a firm, the firm's market value can be higher than what the price of all the individual assets was. Otherwise, there'd be no point in organizing them into a firm. And so I think that Delta, like there's a bunch of people, they come together as shareholders, they form a corporation, then they go out and they buy a factory and they hire workers and they buy plastic and glass and blow, they start cranking out cars. And if I want to say that the market cap of that enterprise as a going concern could be higher than what they originally put into it. And I guess that would show up as the return on their invested capital or something. Or more specifically, if they just for some reason stopped everything and liquidated the assets, for sure, they wouldn't be able to get everything that wouldn't like match the book value or the valuation of the assets on their books. So again, there's some delta there. And I think that shows that even though if they issued bonds, then yeah, that all stuff and the aggregate society nets to zero. That other people's assets, oh yeah, that firm XYZ down the road, I have $1,000 that they owe me. That's a genuine asset to that individual. But from the firm's perspective, it's a $1,000 liability. I don't think you should treat equity ownership the same way. That even though there's residual claimants on the firm's net earnings, I don't think that's equivalent to say, oh yeah, that's just, one person, like, as the firm makes more money, oh, well, then it owes more to these outside people. Like, to me, it's that's confused. Like, no, those people are the firm in a sense. So it's those people effectively earning more net income if the firm's profitability goes up. This is the way I would handle it. But anyway, be that as it may, at best, you would want to look at the U.S. government and say, okay, what overall value is it producing if you could own stock in the U.S. federal government and saw the market cap of that? then you know that would be more analogous to what David's doing here. But it gets worse. It's not just that always oh, focusing on the debt and you wouldn't focus on the debt for a regular company because even if you did focus on the debt, like let's say you looked and said, yeah, GE's got 28.6 right now of billion in long-term debt as of December 2022. There's a sense in which you say, okay, still though, David could come back and argue that GE must expect to earn income over the next few years to be able to service that debt, right? Like in other words, you assume the people running the company aren't idiots. You can see that right now the share price hasn't collapsed or whatever. So you could say, yes, the experts on the market, the people who have you know, their skin in the game, they think GE is a viable concern. The fact that it could have borrowed $28.6 billion is a testament to this engine of productivity and you know, taking inputs and turning them into outputs that the consumers value more than what the inputs were priced at. Okay, so that you could somewhat come up with an idea to say it's not that that number directly measures something or is even proportional to something necessarily, but still the fact that they could support such a big number, you know, means something. A grant David that. Okay, but even there, that's not at all analogous to the U.S. government, right? Because how does GE come up with the ability to service that debt, why were investors willing to lend it $28.6 is because they looked at GE's operations and said, oh yeah, they're pretty good at buying inputs for a certain price collectively, transforming them into goods and services that their customers want, 
and that there's a sense in which they're creating value. All right, I'm being a little bit loose here with the terminology, but you guys get the point. That GE is profitable if you put aside its debt service payments. It has to have enough margin based on just its ongoing operations, putting aside the debt payments to be able to service the debt. Okay. And so that's kind of the proxy then that you're, that's when we sort of tried to bend over backwards to be generous to David's position. That's what I would say. Okay. That, yeah. The fact that GE can service a $28.6 billion long-term debt shows that putting aside debt payments, they must be cranking out value in the aggregate, at least maybe not every product line is a hit, but in general, GE tends to deliver value to the consumers. And that's how it can have this mark. Is that what we say for the U.S. Treasury? Is it like, oh, yeah, David's right. It's They went up and now they've got $22 trillion that they effectively owe people around the world. And let's just sit back and watch the productivity and ability to satisfy voluntary consumers from Uncle Sam over the next few decades. Because he, he, Uncle Sam's got to create value for the, its customers in order to come up with that $22 trillion or whatever, to service the $22 trillion in debt. No, that's obviously not at all what's going on when we talk about government debt. All right, go back to my simple example. We've established, okay, if I borrow $1,000 from David, surely you wouldn't just say the economy is $1,000 richer. That would be goofy, or that'd be way over counting. You could argue somehow that, yeah, there are net benefits from that. David's, in a sense, got more utility. Bob's got more utility. Even though in terms of like the financial accounting, the wealth didn't go up. Okay, so we've seen that you wouldn't value it a thousand. It'd be some number less than that. But then what if I said, okay, and you know how I'm going to pay David back? Next year, I'm going to stick a gun in his belly and say, give me a thousand dollars or I'm going to kill you. And then David says, oh, okay. And so he gives me the thousand dollars in currency, or you know, a different thousand dollars that he had. And then I take that thousand dollars that I just took from him at gunpoint and I hand it over to him. Oh, sorry. I say, give me $1,100. So he does that. He comes up with $1,100 and gives it to me so he didn't get shot. And then I say, oh, you know that $1,100 I owe you because I borrowed $1,000 from you 12 months ago at a 10% interest rate? Here you go. Here's the $1,100 I owe you. That paid off. And I walk away. If that's the arrangement, now ex ante originally when I borrowed the $1,000 from David, would we say the economy is $1,000 richer? Would you say, well, yeah, I mean, the fact that your answer would be one thing, now, would your answer go up if I told you I'm going to stick a gun in his belly? Now, let's make it fair to the U.S. Treasury. Instead, let's say there's mobsters who go around to some people and they borrow money from them and then they give IOUs from Tony the, I'm trying to think of a, of a goofy mob name, Tony the Claw owes this guy $1,100 next year. And then we say, how much richer is the community? You can say a number and now say, now I'm telling you, it is well known that Tony the Claw can just go around to a hundred different, let's just say 10 different restaurants and shake them down for a little bit of money in order for him to come up with the 1100. So now the guy that lent Tony the original thousand, he's very confident that Tony's going to be able to pay him $1,100 next year because he knows push comes to shove, literally. Tony is just going to go around and shake down the restaurant owners in the community to be able to pay the guy off. It's not that Tony has to have done something productive with $1,000. He could have lost it at the horse track. Doesn't matter. He could just go around and use a threat of violence to get that money back. So the guy who lent him the money is absolutely convinced, at least assuming Tony doesn't die, that he's getting paid off. So now the fact that, oh, there's less uncertainty about the repayment, does that mean now the existence of Tony and his willingness to borrow money from people in the community now that I'm saying, oh, and the way he pays back and can guarantee it is he's willing to go around and lean on people and threaten violence to be able to pay off his creditors. Does that mean the community's richer now because of that? Or as an added bit of safety, Tony has a laser printer and he can print up $1,100 in counterfeit money that looks, you know, that, it, that passes and he can hand that back to the guy who originally lent him the money. So now the guy who originally lent the money is very confident he's getting paid back because Tony's got the two-pronged strategies of leaning on the restaurant owners or just printing up counterfeit money and giving it back to him. And so now as Tony expands his operations and he borrows $10 million from various people in the community, 
promising them a 10% rate of return, and they're sure he's paying them back one way or the other, the more Tony's operations grow is that the more value he's conferring on the community because now people have this access to very low risk loans with a decent you know, rate of return that looking at the return risk facts, that, yeah, this is the best investment there is. I wish Tony would borrow more money from me. Does the community get richer as Tony expands his operations? So by the way, let me just, I'll jump ahead and I think most of you hearing us are going to say, no, of course not. That's nuts. Are you crazy? And yet that's exactly what the argument is for why the U.S. government is showering benefits around the world by issuing more treasuries, especially when in times of uncertainty. Because, oh, there's a rush to safety and the U.S. Treasury is the safest asset. Why? Well, because the U.S. government's very responsible and dependable. No one doubts they're going to pay back the money. Why? Because they you know, have their mature, responsible state relative to their peers. And so we're not worried about the tax revenue collapsing. You know, they're going to advance the economy and so on. Good institutions. So that tax revenue is going to keep coming in, which is what the U.S. government telling people, give us money or we're going to send guys with guns to put you in cages, ultimately. Right? The tax revenue does not reflect to a first approximation the level of service you're getting from the government. And that's certainly not why it's dependable. Right. So that's the thing. Even if you do think there's some loose sense in which taxes pay for all the nice goodies we get from the government, all these wonderful services, like nothing I like better than government roads or how well the FAA works. The SEC is really doing a great job over the years. Even if you thought there was some loose connection between taxes and, you know, you could do it with Social Security or something. Okay, fine. But still, on the margin, the reason that people are so sure that the reason tax revenue is more dependable than corporate revenue is not because what the government does is more beneficial. It's because they have the Tony the Claw strategy at their disposal. If you don't pay them, they threaten you ultimately. And so that's why people are more sure the U.S. government is going to come up with the money to be able to pay people. And then what's the ultimate recourse is explained matter-of-factly by Stephanie Kelton and others, is they can just print money, perhaps electronically. All right, so that's why the U.S. Treasury is so safe. Now, there's more to it, to be fair, to David and others who might have endorsed his perspective. The U.S. government is not in the current position, and the U.S. Treasury market is not as deep and wide as it is merely because of their willingness to use violence and counterfeiting, Right. So it's not that next Thursday, Tony the Claw could have $22 trillion in outstanding IOUs the community holds issued by him, even if he's perfectly willing to kill people and counterfeit. Okay, so yes, I'm not trying to be completely obtuse and totally miss what David's trying to get at here, but I am, I think, showing his claim is a lot more dubious than I think he realized at first. Okay, in other words, the ability to collect U.S. dollars on a massive scale. I mean, that's part of the reason that Tony the Claw can't borrow $22 trillion worth of debt from people. Okay, so there's institutional reasons for that. Okay, now let me just be extra fair to David and mention one last little loose end on this train of thought is you could say, yep, Bob, we get what you're saying, but you're wrong. Or even so, I know it sounds ironic, but yes, we can imagine a situation in which even the Tony the Claw thing works, where especially if he is moderate in how much he does that, engages in that sort of activity, it could be the case, and especially if people just pay him, like nobody actually bothers to make him, nobody calls his bluff, is what I'm getting at, that if he doesn't actually have to break anybody's kneecaps or burn down anybody's restaurant to get them to cough up what he, quote, says they owe him, this is your fair share this year, Bernie agrees. Suppose it could work like that, so there's actually not anyone getting physically hurt or property getting destroyed. It's all, quote, voluntary compliance. And let's leave the counterfeiting out, out of it just because that complicates it. I'll just keep it on the taxation. That as long as, he, again, it doesn't get too aggressive with what he's doing, you could imagine a scenario, you could write up a little economic model where this certainty he is providing does help. 
and specifically what's, you know, because there's a sense in which you want to say, this doesn't make any sense, Bob. How are you talking about? Is it the whole rhetorical thrust of your argument that Tony's not making the community richer by threatening to rob them in the future and give them their money back with interest taken from them at gunpoint? How can that be making them richer? How does that make them more secure to know, oh, hey, there's this guy with a gun over here. And don't worry, folks, next year I'm going to rob all of you and give you your money back. And so that's why you can rest easy at night. Good thing I'm around, huh? And there's a little rhetorical trick. So that's why I'm trying to be honest with you and and explain. Because the point here is not to be right. The point is for you to understand more about economics. It's not the same, right? So that's why it's a little different. So it's true if it were just an individual. If I went up to David, borrowed $1,000 from him, then said, I'll give you 1100 next year. Next year went up just to him, stuck a gun in his belly, said, give me 1100 and then gave him his 1100 right back. That, obviously, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing any favors for David, clearly. But it is more subtle if what I'm doing is borrowing money from individuals in the community and then going around to a wide spread of them, right? And so they're depending on people's risk tolerances and blah, blah, blah. You could come up with a model in which the existence of a government that lent to individuals, especially in times of great uncertainty, knowing that in the future they would levy a broad general tax that was fairly low on everybody in order to pay off those particular lenders, you can come up with models where that might raise social welfare, however defined. Okay, but here I come again. Now I want to say, okay, fine. It's a theoretical possibility in this hypothetical world where you're just having a few variables under analysis, but now let's make it more realistic. And I want to say, like, you're kind of mimicking insurance, right? So if there were no such thing as fire insurance, and then the government came along and said, you know, we promise if somebody's house burns down, then what we'll do is we'll go around with our gun and go to every other person in the community and have them at gunpoint give whatever it is, $2, so that in the aggregate, the person whose house burned down, we give you that money. And then you, you know, your house gets, you can get a new house. So you didn't get crushed by the fact that you had this rare catastrophe hit you and your house burned down. The community's got your back and we will enforce that at gunpoint, right? So if what you're comparing is the government has that policy in place or nobody has fire insurance, period. And just, you got to roll the dice. And if your house burns down, oops, sorry, you're out 300 grand. Stinks to be you then you can imagine a simplistic model in which those are the only two options and the community quote is better off from the existence of that government coercive program. But obviously what's better than even that is a free market where there can be fire insurance companies and where they can have very transparent books so the community can go and see and be sure that, oh yeah, I see what they do with the premiums that get paid voluntarily in and how they're investing in these assets and blah, blah, blah. So I'm pretty confident that if my house did burn down next month, they would have the ability to honor that check that they said they would send me, right? Because if the fire insurance company is just taking the premiums and betting them on the horses, then you might not be confident that they're going to pay you even if they say they will, right? So then the fact that the government can guarantee, basically, we're going to pay you because we can just go rob everybody at gunpoint, that becomes more relevant. But if the free market alternative, voluntary alternative to the government doing it with coercion can also be pretty secure in its promises, then that reduces the ostensible benefit of the government being willing to coerce people into it. Okay. And so I am saying if you got rid of the United States federal government and the huge income tax, if you got rid of the Federal Reserve and how it debases the currency and blah, 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 and all these regulations too that prohibit people from doing certain financial transactions. I think that there could be a deep and wide market in extremely safe financial assets. Because that's the thing is, to have the existence of the U.S. federal government, even if you're going to say, no, there's no way the free market could mimic the current safety of the U.S. government, at least in its ability to pay you back in nominal dollars, right? Like if there was a private analog of companies and they said, no, we've got all these Bitcoins and cold storage and whatever, and we can pay you and we promise and that it's 100% reserve and you've got smart contracts and it's all on autopilot and the community's vetting it with blockchain, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, nobody's in charge of it. No, we could not pay you if we wanted to. Ha ha. You know, we're not in charge anymore. Still, 
even if you thought, so by the way, I'm not conceding the point. I'm thinking maybe, especially now with modern technology, you could imagine things that are way safer than relying on the U.S. Treasury not defaulting, especially with their arguments over the debt ceiling, right? Like that's kind of the funny thing is, oh, the U.S. Treasury is the safest asset in the world and these crazy Republicans might smash the debt market. This is nuts. Or if Donald Trump got elected again, holy cow, who knows what would happen? The Treasury market might fail, right? So I don't want to concede too much, but I'm saying even if it were true that a well-run U.S. Treasury would be safer than any voluntary analog or alternative, still, we don't have a well-run U.S. Treasury. Like I just, I said, I'm kind of mixing the points there, but in the real world, that's not the case. Oh, but also too, you have to take into account, even on the narrow issue, like, yeah, put aside the debt default and all that. Let's assume they're really responsible. Still, the reason they're in that position is because of their ability to levy an income tax that's variable, by the way. All right. And so I'm saying the uncertainty now is opened up on that margin. So yes, people can be pretty sure Uncle Sam's not going to default on nominal treasury payments. They don't know what the CPI inflation numbers are going to be. So yeah, they're pretty sure I want to get my $1,000 in five years, but I don't know what it's going to buy me at the grocery store, right? So there's that element of uncertainty, which would be contained in a hard money free market version of this stuff. And you don't know what your tax rate's going to be, right? So Because again, part of why it is that we're pretty sure the government can pay off people is because they can just raise taxes if they need to. So that, and again, introduces uncertainty on that element. So it's not at all clear to me that, quote, the community is better off, is more secure, can more confidently plan for the future because of the existence of this coercive institution that can tax them and create more of the currency that's legal tender to be able to pay off nominal debts. And that that on net actually adds to the financial security of the community. I don't think that's true if you take into account all of the relevant things, even just letting everybody operate as best as could possibly be expected. I'm not just saying, oh, yeah, you really trust Nancy Pelosi. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying you could have David Andelfaro running the central bank and whoever, other people, Badgett running the treasury or something. Okay. Let me now quickly transition. What came up with Peter St. Ange it was very interesting. I was talking with him in the human action. So I'll put a link. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 266. If you want the link, so I'll do a link to, I'm speaking on note, a link to that episode with Peter too. But the issue was, should we care if the central bank is bankrupt, right? They bought a bunch of bonds. The interest rates rise, bond prices fall. There's a sense in which the Fed is insolvent if it had to mark to market. Should we care? And I was pushing back a little bit on this with him. I just said, in general, should I care? You know, what if Walmart comes out next week and says, oh, we're bankrupt? Should we care? You know, obviously, if you're an employee of Walmart, you care. Obviously, if you're a shareholder of Walmart, you care. If you're even someone who shops there all the time, you care. But like, if you weren't any of those things, would you care? And I thought, you might, because other things equal, what does it mean if an enterprise is profitable? then there's a sense in which it took resources from society and transformed them to goods and services that other people value more highly. And there's a sense in general in economics that somebody's contributions, they don't capture all the gains. There's like a spillover effect, right? So remember, some of you may remember Krugman was being super silly, not super silliest, although he probably was that too. He was arguing at one point, I think he actually might've done it twice, at least during the time when I was following him closely, where he was trying to use the free marketers rhetoric against them to say, oh, well, free marketeers think people get paid their marginal product. They think labor markets are efficient. So if some CEO, you know, some job creator, you know, some guy's really productive comes in and generates $10 million worth of benefit to society, well, then they think he should be paid $10 million. So it's a wash. So in other words, society actually doesn't care whether all the star athletes quit next week because they were all getting paid what their contribution was. And if all the CEOs of these startups just quit next week, it wouldn't matter because, yeah, we don't have their products or whatever, but now we don't have to pay them these exorbitant salaries. And so just all wash. So obviously that's dumb, right? No, there's a sense, among other things, that's ignoring the difference between marginal and inframarginal units. Just like forget the, you know, the superstars, just regular employees coming to work in the factory on the line. You can think that, yep, on the margin, they're probably getting paid what they're bringing to the company. If they all called in sick on Thursday and nobody showed up to work and the factory just sat idle, does that mean the employer, and suppose that when they call in sick, they don't have to get paid, right? 
does that mean the employer breaks even? He said, oh, well, we don't have any product to sell, but on the bright side, I don't have to pay any laborers, any wages. So I'm indifferent because I was paying them. No, the fact that you pay, you know, that if somebody's working eight hours a day, what wage equals marginal product to labor thing means is that on the margin, that last hour of labor, that labor hour you hire, you're paying what that's adding to the bottom line of the firm, absent labor cost. That doesn't mean all the first seven hours that that guy is putting in, you also value the same. No, you value his earlier inputs actually more than that, right? That's why there's gains from trade or forget labor, just in general. You, If there's in standard neoclassical models, the market price is such that supply increases until the point at which the marginal benefit equals the price, right? So people keep buying, you know, oh, there's a soda's on sale. Are you going to just spend your entire net worth buying soda? No. Is it either zero or is your whole net worth? No, at some point you stop because on the margin, one more can of soda is not worth the purchase price. Does that mean you're in there? Let's say you bought eight cans of soda. Does that mean now because the ninth can wasn't worth it to you given the price, but the eighth can was just barely worth it and the seventh can clearly was and the sixth clearly, clearly was. So does that mean the whole thing was a wash and that you're indifferent between having the number of dollar bills versus the eight cans of soda? No. You benefit from getting those eight cans of soda more than the dollars you gave up in the store is vice versa. Okay, so crewmen just being completely goofy. Okay, so like if somebody in an introductory econ class sent that on an exam, that would be very interesting. And I would probably spend the next class lecturing on it because I was like, hey, that's a very interesting point that, you know, so-and-so had. I probably get the kid's permission. You know, it's wrong, but it's interestingly wrong. Let's see why. You know, okay. But that's not something that a noble economist should be doing. And I guess I think he did it twice. Like, so after the first time he got spanked, and not just by me, it was by like other Keynesians saying, what are you talking about, Paul? Like, you just kind of proved the U.S. doesn't need to import oil. This was back when the U.S. was a net oil importer. Because after all, we just pay the market price and the market price reflects what it's worth to us on the margin. So therefore, whether we get oil imports of however many millions of barrels or zero, we should be indifferent, right? No, that's stupid, Paul. What are you doing? Okay. So anyway, my point there is there's a general pattern in economics where voluntary transactions, yes, the people who are, in a sense, providing to others get compensated for that and they get to, in a sense, take out of the economy part of what they put in, but we're all better off by all putting in and then all taking out. We're better off than if we all just did it in isolation. Okay. And so there's a sense in which other things equal, I should want Walmart to have a big profit that it announces rather than saying it's going out of business because it's bankrupt. Other things equal. Even if I don't shop at Walmart, if I don't work there, if I don't own any of their stock. Okay. And so that's the sense in which if the central bank now is saying it's bankrupt, the problem is what does that mean? Because now it's a financial firm. And so that's, well, if they bought a bunch of bonds that then dropped in price, there's a sense in which their actions disequilibrated the market. They pay too much for those bonds before, right? And so then that's the mirror image of saying the Fed pushed down interest rates to artificially low levels. They paid more for those bonds than they should have had they been a profit-maximizing firm. I mean, they may have known full what they're doing, but if they were in business to make money. Well, if they are in business to make money, am I right? You get what I'm saying. Okay, so last little thing is when Peter and I were going back for it, it was interesting. I said, okay, imagine... So Peter's point was the damage that was done is when they created the dollars to buy those assets. That's when the damage was. The fact that now we're booking it in terms of their bankruptcy or insolvency based on some sort of accounting procedures is just the reflection of the damage that was actually done in the past. And yes and no. Here's what I'll leave you with. So I made the point to Peter. I said, well, think of it this way though. Let's say there's some counterfeiter, some guy that he prints up a bunch of money, and there's two scenarios. In one scenario, he prints up a million dollars, let's say, and he goes around to everybody in the community with his newly printed up counterfeit money that looks legit and so passes the smell test. And he hires a bunch of workers, buys a bunch of lumber, shingles, blah, 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 builds an apartment complex in scenario one. And the plans are terrible. And right, you know, no one's in it, thank goodness. But the whole thing, once when it's done, just collapses. And all those materials are now useless because everything broke. And in scenario two, same thing. He prints up a million dollars in counterfeit money, hires carpenters, roofers, blah, 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 
builds in lumber, builds an apartment complex, except this one is structurally sound. It provides shelter services to people for the next 30 years. Are you saying, Peter, that those two scenarios are equivalent? And I think he agreed with me that no, scenario two is better, right? So in both cases, there's a sense in which the individual robbed the rest of the community by a million dollars in the aggregate, right? That he, by printing up that money, he absorbed those resources. Similarly to if he just took a gun and went around and just pointed it at the heads of the carpenters and stuff and said, here, come work. The difference between doing that versus printing the money is when he prints it, it kind of spreads the loss over all the people owning dollar-denominated assets if he's using U.S. dollars. Whereas if he points guns, it's like the carpenter just got enslaved for whatever it was a month and lost. You know, He's the one bearing a huge portion of the loss or the theft. Whereas if the guy prints up the money, it kind of gets distributed more uniformly because he's paying wages to the carpenter. So the carpenter, you know, not knowing that it's counterfeit isn't, you know, that's actually the best job offer. That's why he went to do it voluntarily. Okay. So, so yes, whether the building is sound or unsound, that million dollar counterfeiting represents stealing from the community to the tune of a thousand or sorry, a million dollars in the aggregate either way. But then given that he did that, wouldn't you prefer he builds a viable apartment complex? And I, think that yes, you would, right? So given that central banks were going to create a bunch of money, yeah, that effectively robbed the people holding assets denominated in that money. But still, if they invested it in ways that they didn't end up going bankrupt down the road, I think actually that would be better from a social welfare point of view. Okay, a lot of good stuff today. Hope it gives you some food for thought. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.